I know that folks are tired of seeing tents on the street. They're tired of finding people asleep in their doorways in the morning. Uh, I work downtown every day. I'm well aware of it. That's the voice of King County Executive Dow Constantine, one of many guests appearing on Season 5 of Seattle Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff Shulman, a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, and today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast wraps up Season 5's focus on homelessness, a crisis affecting everyone connected to Seattle. For this season of Seattle Growth Podcast, I spoke with individuals who have found themselves homeless in the city, government leaders, business leaders, and everyday people who have decided to do something about the homelessness crisis. In today's episode, you will hear their voices as they describe the causes of homelessness, the effect of homelessness on the individuals experiencing it and their surrounding community, and you'll also hear ideas for improving the situation in Seattle. And today also includes an in-depth interview with Casey Truppen of the Rakes Foundation, who worked with Pearl Jam to raise awareness and money for addressing the homelessness crisis. But before we get started on this episode, I want to apologize for the delay in concluding this fifth season of Seattle Growth Podcast. I have been hard at work preparing to make a feature-length documentary, On the Brink, available to the public. On the Brink tells the story of a once-thriving community on the brink of vanishing from Seattle. Through this podcast, I learned of a history that's in danger of becoming history. And so I set out to make a movie, and I'm excited that it will be showing at the Northwest African American Museum on Tuesday, June 25th. You could see the trailer and get tickets at www.onthebrinkmovie.com. That's onthebrinkmovie.com. Now, homelessness is a complex issue. As you heard from the voices in this season of Seattle Growth Podcast, individuals find themselves homeless for a variety of reasons. I was staying with a friend of mine, and then she ended up getting evicted, and we went. That's when we didn't have a place to go. My bad choices usually put me there. You know, my drinking, I was a functioning alcoholic. I was driving my car as a district manager, drunk every day, going to the bank. My experience of homelessness happened when I was a young adult in my hometown of Richmond, Virginia. And, um, and for me, it was, it was spiraling into a pretty significant depression, um, a very difficult um, uh, marriage that fell apart and kind of losing my, my family and my home and my job and um, not having appropriate resources in terms of counseling. Uh, the cost of living was starting to creep up even more. So, you know, starving artist is not just a, a, a cliche word. It's, it's, it's real. You know, people out here who want to do the music where you have to put 110% into it, it hard times got hard. So um, I got evicted from the place I was staying at. I've had friends that I've stayed with in this city and ch on the cheap, you know, give me give me a, a room for, you know, three, four, five hundred bucks, whatever, and, and be able to stay. But it, it always tends that they move twice. They've moved out of town themselves. And I, and I didn't leave because I can't afford to leave. I, 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 I'm trying to stick it out and try to make it here. Well, I went into business for myself for about 15 years uh, in the recession, got clobbered um, and uh, fell into homelessness. It was super quick. Uh, he woke me up at two in the morning one night and said he couldn't get out of bed, that he couldn't feel anything below his waist. We called 
an ambulance. He was in surgery by noon that next day. Um, I took time for as much time from work as I could, but I wasn't being paid. And it was right at the beginning of a new pay cycle. So by the time I received my next check, it wasn't enough to pay for rent. And as a young family, we didn't have much of a savings. And so there wasn't enough for rent that time around. Um, So within a couple weeks, we were evicted. Some individuals were previously sheltered in our community and others have been drawn to it. One reason I came up here, you know, they said they're eating, so I brought my fork. You know what I mean? So hopefully that, you know, I can have the opportunity, you know, to, you know, better my situation and, 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 and you know, eat good like everybody else is eating good. During my homelessness, uh, I was kicked out of Vegas and I chose Seattle. Had a friend to call up here. I uh, ended up going through DESC, getting my high school diploma and uh, getting hooked up with some college and stuff. And, and uh, my dad health went bad so I went back to Texas to help with that and he passed away so I come back to Seattle where I really want to be I love it up here it's so it's just beautiful the people are great and uh, just it's home it calls me so I found there's some more opportunities here than you can find in a little place like Lynchburg Virginia so I've stayed here out of interest in the um, Woodland Zoo and the aquarium down there and the Space Needle and the ferry boat system and the light link rail system But regardless of how or where someone became homeless, the individuals on this podcast expressed the difficulty of life without a permanent place to call home. Yeah, it's really emotional. It's stressful. Um, You get depressed. And I I just kept myself, tried to keep myself as busy as I could. And my dad helped me out quite a bit too. And, uh, I don't, without him, he he helped out a lot. Without him, I probably wouldn't have, you know, made it through this situation either. Homelessness itself is traumatic. And whatever led up to homelessness and whatever factors are kind of keeping people stuck in homelessness, that those are traumatic as well. So it's, it's kind of trauma on top of trauma. Uh, could you imagine if uh, you went to work and come back home and your house had been bulldozed? Uh, if you went to the bank and uh, your security deposit box had been seemed the wall had been cemented, you couldn't get your documents or your money out. Okay, I challenge anybody. You know, once you come down here for 30 days, take your credit card away, no phone, and live with me. Most people couldn't handle it and drive you crazy. Be spending the most expensive ways to get food which is the corner store food and most likely it's not good for you so you know you're you're the you're trying to cut corners and you know you're getting the white bread and you know you're getting some bologna sandwiches but you got to carry the white bread everywhere with you so you know you got to make the sandwiches that's already cooked that's four dollars for a sandwich you're gonna eat what one sandwich a day and that's it that's supposed to hold you no then you have to get something to drink that drink is like another two dollars and some change, you know. So now, boom, you don't spend six dollars when you're only supposed to be spending four dollars or something a day. And like, oh, oh, you can you can eat water, drink water, and eat healthy. You can't eat healthy when the apple costs half of what you're trying to make. You don't carry around a bag of apples, but you can't carry around that much stuff. I feel this place more and more and more marginalized. Not just in Seattle, but everywhere, is that you might be one paycheck away from being on the street, and that's a scary thing. Except when you're in it, and you realize it's not so bad. I'm not saying it's great, 
but it's not so bad when you when you when you meet the people that you're in it with. They're not bad people. Once you're in homelessness, that's why it's hard to get out because you're kind of you kind of a hole's been dug, and 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 you really got to dig it out. And if you're not if you're not if you have a bad day or a bad week or something like that, you might you know who knows what might happen. You might take it you know you might lose your motivation. Well, for one thing, shower. Okay, that's kind of hard to do. Yeah. You know, um, so. For me, for instance, there's women's wellness on the corner of Second Stewart. You uh, call, you make an appointment for a shower. It very quickly became what was going to happen in the next 24 hours. There wasn't enough room in my head for a week or a month or six months down the road. It was, what are we having for breakfast? What are we going to do during the day? How much gas am I going to be able to use today? Where are we sleeping tonight? And then what are we having for breakfast? And homelessness isn't just affecting those struggling to survive. Sheltered residents in Seattle expressed concern about the crisis. Well, unfortunately, I think I've seen more and more homeless on the streets, which really saddens me. The main way that it has affected our members is just because we're the ones that are cleaning up the encampments. Well, they have to have vaccinations for bloodborne diseases, and they need to have their protective equipment to make sure if they step on a needle or something that they're protected from that. My friend's son, who my friend, she's also an, an unsheltered individual who was staying near an encampment in Ballard, and her son got swept out of his tent. And they're both indigenous people, you know. And the irony and the heartbreak about that is just it—that's tragedy right there. And um, her son got pushed out and needed a place immediately because it was in the middle of winter; it's freezing temperatures, and the the closest place he could find was. Yeah, next to a highway, the very place where the city doesn't want encampments to be at. And he just thought it was just going to be for one night. He didn't know where to go. He barely had a tarp left, let alone his, a tent. His tent got destroyed. Um, and that night, uh, a car hit him and he passed away. And it's not a healthy experience for the neighborhood, really. Um, the, there's impacts to folks who are working downtown, to folks who own property, to folks who live downtown. So um, it's not a healthy situation to have people living outside either for them or for the neighborhood it's in everyone's interest to have less people be in distress i mean homelessness you know i can carp about what it's like to walk around but really it's just super sad former washington state attorney general rob mckenna king county executive dow constantine and city council members teresa mosqueda and mike o'brien are a few of the voices in the podcast who expressed challenges with the current system and ideas for addressing these challenges. Some of the challenges raised are as follows. One big suite of challenges is behavioral health. Whether it's mental health or um, addiction, uh, there is simply not enough treatment on demand. Treatment the day you reach your hand out and say, I got a problem, I need help. So do you let somebody like like this guy who has clear problems and issues uh, just decide for himself that, no, he's fine, when you look at his living situation and the way that he is forced to exist out on that sidewalk and say, really, is this the best that we can do for him? Um, I think there are um, many stories out about the, the failures these days of the mental health system. And I think that this is one of the um, 
the evidences, I guess, of those failures, increasing numbers of people on the streets, living in tents, on the sidewalks, uh, sidewalks with mental illness. And we need to put our heads together and figure out a better way to address that. I wish that we had addressed um, the need for affordable housing five, ten years ago. I wish that we had thought about investments upstream in mental health services and health services overall. Right now, we have money that's being wasted on ambulance rides, on firefighters who are showing up and they recognize, they know the names of the homeless people that they're calling to serve. Um, we also know that there's people who are working out, who are working, and they're still living outside. We can do a better job of serving everybody in our community if we get folks housed and get them to the services that they. Need need. They see this segment. If we want to build more tourism in our city and make it more modern, then, then we're going to have to modernize the, the homeless system that we do have in place. Everything is so intermittent. Between the organizations, there's no, there's no, um, how would you say that? There's, they're not organized together. EBT, which I don't understand here, you can't get cooked foods. Um, if you're homeless, what the hell are you going to cook it at? Towing someone who's trying to get back into housing and, um, you know, taking the limited resources they have and putting them into parking tickets or impound fees, um, maybe taking away the place they're living. So now they're living outdoors. Maybe they can't go to work anymore because when we towed their vehicle, the tools they needed to go to work were in the vehicle. I mean, all those things make us all worse off. You know, we live in, our, we live in a society governed by rules, by laws, by norms. And just because someone wants to be able to throw their tent up underneath I-5 and, uh, you, know, you know, live the way they want to live without regard to others doesn't mean that we as a society have to put up with that. And business leaders, activists, and elected officials shared opinions on what government can do to address this crisis. The initial reaction to homelessness is always, you know, to see the person on the street to go into kind of emergency response or crisis response mode and get them into shelter. But the, the, the real key thing is to get beyond that and get them to the point where they're not dependent and they are able to be securely housed and actually working on making more money, taking care of their kids. We want to be proactive. We want to be thoughtful and compassionate. And we have to act in this year's budget to invest where we, um, where we know it works. Shelters, housing, health services, and trash removal. Um, so we need more housing, and we need more housing that's uh, affordable to people at a range of wages. Um, we need the top 1% of businesses to pay their fair share um, and to give back to the community that they're extracting resources from. The, the, the kinds of programs that are most effective at reducing poverty are often these federally funded, federally funded programs, like the Earned Income Tax Credit, um, which lifts you know, tens of millions of people out of poverty a year. While still being empathetic and trying to help people get into services, let's clean up the city in a way that supports these people who, I mean, I think one th way to look at it is there for the grace of God go I, right? You have to be empathetic, but don't go so far that you begin to make the people who can be part of the solution go, well, wait a minute, this isn't working for me. We need small apartments. Uh, as part of the solution. Uh, we need more tent cities uh, to be available for people who want to live in a safe, regulated environment that's uh, you know, in that even lower cost setting. But it is clear that government cannot solve this problem on its own. As Teresa Mosqueda said, city council is asking those who've done the best in our local economy to step forward and come up with innovative solutions. And as daunting as the homelessness crisis is, there are people and businesses rising to the occasion doing their small part to chip away at the problem. Amazon 
is building a shelter in one of their buildings. Vulcan is building low-income housing down in the valley. Uh, the Balmer Group is helping us with a pay-for-success model to increase behavioral health. All of those things are important pieces. When we have reached out to the community to uh, provide clothing donations for the Roy Street shelter, uh, we get uh, clothes that fill up boxes and boxes and boxes. Um, people want to help. Uh, they are hungry for more information on how to help and what specific kinds of things could make the most difference. I think homelessness, you know, in Uptown, we're all about advocacy for shelter, about affordable housing, and about jobs, connecting people with jobs. What we decided to do was to work together across many disciplines and with the homeless youth in the U District and service providers and the wider community to start a series of pop-up community cafes. So actually starting with the idea let's have a kind of a safe space for everyone, including the wider community. It's not like, this isn't the, the, the homeless youth, you know, uh, community cafe. So it was much more open and, and less stigmatizing and having a variety of health and social services available for people to learn about. You know, a lot of us, we, we are fighting for individuals that are on the streets. We're fighting for individuals that are unshelterable. So fighting for our own futures as well. Um, I'm, I'm not exempt from being one accident, one health scare, one, you know, job, job loss away from finding myself in similar situations. And uh, if, if we don't fight for people right now, a lot of us are going to find ourselves in similar situations. We've got some great nonprofit housing providers across the city and across the county that have really led the way nationally on, on new models and approaches, uh, working to connect people that are currently outside with services, shelter, and uh, employment. What if I, a builder, gathered some former builder friends together, retired now, and throw together some houses? Do you have a flow for them, a place where they can go, or are we going to just have them on our driveways wondering what to do with them? You know, And they said, sure. And so I decided to design a program. And all of a sudden, people started hearing about it and uh, started asking me about it. Could they help out? Could they participate? And it just kind of blossomed from there. And uh, having building skills, it's just pure fun for me to build house these houses. Uh, but what came out of it was just this uh, excitement by all the people, like, I can do something for the homeless as well, not knowing what to do. I can do something by participating in this Building Dreams thing. What I think this will do is show that the private sector can come up with solutions. So let's look at this solution. We know the benefits of it. We're, we're bringing uh, affordable housing into the downtown core. We're, we're creating a place where there isn't gentrification. We're keeping the soul of Seattle because you have a wide range of, of uh, people that are living downtown. And the stories you have heard in this podcast are not alone. There are people throughout this city who have chosen to bring whatever time and skills they have to the effort to find solutions. One group in Seattle who made a splash with their home shows is Pearl Jam. In today's interview, I sat down with Casey Troopin, who shares how the home shows came together and how Pearl Jam made a lasting impact beyond the two concerts dedicated to raising money and awareness for homelessness. But before I get to the interview, I want to share a chance for you to join me at the red carpet premiere of On the Brink. We're going to have Hall of Fame athletes, government leaders, talented musicians, and successful business leaders come together at the red carpet premiere at the historic Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute on Sunday, June 9th. 
I'm going to give loyal Seattle Growth Podcast listeners an exclusive chance to get tickets before a very limited number is available to the public. Stay tuned until the end of the show for information on how you could join me on the red carpet. Now, to learn more about how Pearl Jam came to make a positive impact on Seattle's homelessness crisis, join me as I sit down with Casey Troopin. I am here with Casey Troopin, who is working on youth homelessness with the Rakes Foundation. Uh, he and the Rakes Foundation has collaborated with Pearl Jam on the home shows, and we're going to get more into that soon. But first, I just want to say, Casey, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, why don't you just tell me a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a, a Seattle native, uh, which seems obviously relevant to this this uh, effort. I grew up here um, and for a long time worked as an attorney working on children and youth issues, um, working on foster care and education issues and juvenile justice issues and youth homelessness for a long time. Actually uh, worked for one summer at a, a drop-in center just across the way from here. And um, a couple of years ago, got the opportunity to join the Rakes Foundation and work on their efforts around youth homelessness. So for three years, I've been at the foundation uh, doing that work. Tell me a little bit about the mission of the Rakes Foundation and and what you're do what the organization is doing. Uh, well, the Rakes Foundation is really focused on uh, making sure that all youth have the opportunity to succeed, and uh, it's it's been around for quite a while now. It was founded by Jeff and Trisha Rakes. They've been here for quite a while. They they feel incredibly lucky to, as they describe it, have won the Microsoft lottery. And I think more important than that than that, they feel um, that it's their duty to to you know take that opportunity to give back to the community. So they've focused on a number of different systems that affect the lives of youth and can make them better or worse. And and what can they do to um, improve the opportunities that youth have? by using not just the money that they have, but their voice and and um, and staff that they bring in. And now you are with them helping working on youth homelessness. What do you define as youth? What's the age that falls under youth homelessness? And, and how do you become a youth on the streets or homeless? So we define it as youth ages uh, 12 to 24. Um, that's a, a pretty um, common age range that's used um, across the country for youth homelessness. Um, we focus on youth who are unaccompanied, which generally means that they're not in the physical custody of their parent or guardian. Um, and that can happen in really a number of different ways. And I think we're becoming clearer as more research happens on what the, um, what the roots to youth homelessness are. Uh, we certainly see a huge overlap with abuse and neglect, youth who, um, whose parents, um, are making the home, uh, an unsafe place for them. And young people choose to be on the streets rather than be at a home that's unsafe for them. Um, because of it could be parental substance abuse or parental mental health issues or just abuse and neglect. It also could be that the young person has come out as LGBTQ and uh, the parent has asked them to leave. There's certainly a lot of youth who've, who've been pushed out rather than have run away. They've actually been asked to leave. Um, there's a, certainly a lot of overlap with um, with uh, families that, that aren't able to support young people um, for whatever reason, again, mental health or substance use, um, and, and the youth, um, seeks the refuge of, of homelessness over being in a, in a home that's unable to support them. 
Now, can you talk about maybe a win that you've had in your three years at the Rakes Foundation? Like, how would somebody who's listening be able to say, gosh, Casey has done something to tackle the issue that you've been spending three years on? Sure. I, 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 and I would say um, none of these things are, um, are Casey's wins. Um, I think for us to have a win, it requires um, a lot of different players to kind of come to the table. And that's often business and government, uh, the youth themselves, um, providers. Um, and, and so the wins we've had have always involved all of those folks coming to the table. Um, I think we've had a bunch of wins in really tying together um, different systems with youth homelessness to both either prevent or intervene early in youth homelessness. Um, we've had, um, we've instituted a new way of doing business in the juvenile justice system in King County around youth homelessness an intervention that will help young people get to stable housing more quickly in schools. Um, we've funded at the state level, something called schoolhouse Washington, which is really illuminated through data um, the overlap between student homelessness and uh, really between homelessness and, and students and, you know, showing things like um, the incredible impact of homelessness, especially on students of color, the overrepresentation of youth being disciplined who are homeless, the overrepresentation of youth who are in special education and homelessness. Um, so Schoolhouse Washington has really, I think, transformed how, um, how, we think about schools and homelessness, which I think has transformed the, the dialogue. And they've been able to um, get the legislature to put forth $2 million in, in funding to actually address this issue. We're one of the few states anywhere to do that. Another um, accomplishment that we've had at the Rakes Foundation that um, was um, helping the community get together and, and um, facilitating discussions about what would be the thing that you would want state government to do most. And that led to passage of um, both a uh, law that led to um, the establishment of a state office of homeless youth, which makes us one of the few states in the nation actually say, here's who at state government is responsible for this, um, and a state plan to end youth homelessness. Um, we've seen similar, I think, um, accomplishments in King County. We helped fund the uh, first host home program in King County. And host homes are basically someone has an open room in their house and they don't want to be necessarily a foster parent, but they feel like um, they could open that home up to somebody who's homeless, but getting on their feet. Um, the young person who's homeless will have case management support. And the, the homeowners are saying, you can stay here. I'm not going to be your parent, but I'll open up my home to you so you don't have to live in a shelter or underneath a bridge. That program opened up through the YMCA, and the county has now co-funded it with us. Um, that's a real, I think, organic response to youth homelessness. So there's been a lot. And I think when we invest in solutions, we want to show that those solutions are um, good investments by government or good investments by the community that they can impact a lot of young people and that they are part of a package to actually end youth homelessness because we don't want to see the community just manage it. We really want to be part of the solution and we want King County and Washington State to be the first places to say there are no young people who are sleeping on the streets tonight. So with the Rakes Foundation, you've had several wins. Again, you, you credit not just the Rakes Foundation, but the government and business and, and everybody coming together to, to tackle this. Um, one 
from the outside looks like a win is, you know, collaborating with Pearl Jam on the home shows and just getting uh, just an incredible amount of energy and enthusiasm behind what you said is your goal of eliminating youth homelessness. Talk about how you came to be involved with Pearl Jam and these home shows. We certainly keep an eye out for anything around homelessness that's happening in our in our backyard. Um, and, and we knew that Pearl Jam was planning on dedicating a portion of its ticket sales for the home shows, uh, to homelessness. I can't remember if we connected with them or they connected with us. Um, we knew that, um, this was going to happen as a collaboration with the Seattle Mariners and, and, um, and we have collaborated with the Mariners as well. Um, so somehow we got connected and, and they had asked us, you know, what would you do? How would you roll this out? And we had given them an idea about how how we might uh, do the home shows if we were um, in charge of it. And we didn't necessarily expect it to go any further than that. But we wanted to offer up our expertise, given that we spent, you know, all of our, our working hours thinking about youth homelessness. Um, I think there was a lot of skepticism everywhere about another celebrity effort to address homelessness. And I think the skepticism, um, you know, it was, it was um, well-placed because I think celebrities um, come in and they have all the good intentions in the world, but, um, but not every effort ultimately results in kind of a, a game-changing effort. And that's what Pearl Jam was saying they wanted to do recall what you were feeling as you were seeing this go from idea to a reality well i think um it should be said that as a seattle kid i was obviously intrigued by the fact that it was pearl jam um and the fact that they were doing it in concert with the seattle mariners you know it kind of hit that venn diagram of everything that that casey loves um and i think that's actually a meaningful point it's it's not a throwaway point because um, when people react that way, um, it, it actually, it, it makes your connection to the effort a lot different than if it's a politician or it's, um, an organization that's known for working on homelessness, or it's a foundation like the Rakes Foundation that, you know, you know what we care about. Um, there's a whole different connection to Pearl Jam. Uh, and we saw that be a really meaningful, criteria or, or, or piece of this that people want to be involved with Pearl Jam and it just happened that Pearl Jam chose to work on homelessness. So um, ultimately as as Pearl Jam did an inordinate amount of research on homelessness in the community, the band members, the, the staff that they had hired to do this, their own staff, their foundation staff, um, we took note that they weren't just um, – they weren't just kind of throwing their money at the first thing that came along. And, and I think it um, made us want to get more involved. Um, we, um, they asked us to be on an advisory board. Um, so I s- was able to serve throughout on an advisory board and I'll come back to that. But, um, and uh, we also decided to make a, a pretty substantial investment in, um, in the home shows uh, through the foundation as well. For those who were not paying attention, the home shows, Pearl Jam plays two nights uh, sold out in Safeco Field and raising awareness and money for homelessness here in Seattle. And as you're building up to this culmination of this effort, uh, what were you thinking as you get closer and closer and you're getting more information about how this is going to play out? 
Yeah, I I think we saw at the beginning they said, look, we're gonna we're gonna do sh- two shows in August. There'll be the first, I think, shows for Pearl Jam in Seattle in, in a number of years. There'll be the biggest shows just in terms of number of attendees since I think it was 1981, since the Stones played in the Kingdom. Uh, and, you know, we thought that was great. You know, they were dedicating a pretty significant portion of their ticket sales to it. And so we thought, well, great celebrity effort. You get some money in. The people who come um, are going to hear about homelessness. And, and um, as it moved on, the band kept saying over and over again, the money is among the least important things about this. If we can use our platform um, or our stage uh, to get people engaged and think that they have a role to play in actually addressing homelessness in our region, then we're going to do everything we can to do that. And so we said, ah, that's great. It's a nice thing to say. But what we saw them do was they would engage with the mayor and the city council and the um, county executive, and they'd talk with business leaders. And the timing was really important because um, regardless of which side you fall fell on the head tax debate, um, the... The, the community really was, and I think to some extent, um, is fractured around this. And so uh, people related to one side or the other of a debate, and here comes this uh, band who really has no stake in it except to look for a solution, and nobody nobody is angry at them. And it turned out that that was exactly what we needed, was somebody that People on either side of this could come and say, look, you're you're really a neutral in this. And the band knew that and they were going to take advantage of that. So they said, look, we're going to tell the stories. You know, we need to find somebody to help us make the videos to tell the stories. We're going to um, get businesses to invest and think about their role going forward and get their employees to invest. So they would go to Nordstrom and get them to sign up, you know, their employees um, we're going to have the band members talk to whomever. It doesn't matter if it's an elected official or a, a business leader. And we saw this happening, and it really was quite transformational and quite incredible to see how much time they spent on this and the impact it was having. It really shaped the discussions about how businesses were going to engage, about how elected officials were engaged, and things grew out of this that uh, that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So let's talk about, from your personal experience, what came of Pearl Jam's home shows uh, what came of it for your work in the Rakes Foundation? What are some ways that the impact has lived on beyond just August and the initial press and publicity? So um, I think it's lived on in a number of ways. I think in a larger context, the involvement of Pearl Jam has really helped the community think about how we're going to approach this as a regional discussion. Um, it can't be just Seattle's issue. It can't be just King County's issue. It has to involve suburban cities. It has to involve Seattle and King County. And I think they really leaned in to say, we need to come up with a solution that's regional, that's not just government's issue, but is not just business's issue. And they have they've continued to engage in that. And I think they've pushed that discussion along in a really helpful and positive way. Um, and you see elected officials all over as well as business leaders engage. And I, I think you're seeing business leaders give money um, in ways that um, they wouldn't have otherwise because they're inspired by seeing what what stories Pearl Jam was able to elevate. You know, they would they did an incredible video around student homelessness, um, which I think inspired 
uh, Glassy Baby, for example, to dedicate $200,000 to student homelessness in, in our region. Um, they did an incredible video around host homes, which I mentioned earlier, and more money has flowed into that program. For us, those are you know some examples. We work on student homelessness. We work on host homes. But one of the biggest examples of how their involvement has been impactful is they really helped facilitate a discussion which led to King County committing to a campaign to address youth homelessness in a very smart way, a data-driven way, a way that gets this to be a regional response. And together, the Rakes Foundation and Pearl Jam co-invested on this effort, $1.2 million to basically in two years bring that number of homeless youth as low as possible in a multi-sector coordinated way. Um, and that's something that would not have happened had they not gotten involved. So we're going to see over the next two years, starting in January through December of um, 2020, a very coordinated push to end youth homelessness backed by just an initial investment of $1.2 million. But we're going to see a total change, hopefully, in the landscape of how the all of the systems deal with youth homelessness and the services that are offered because Pearl Jam said, we want to support something transformational. We don't, we don't just want to give you know, to create more of the same. So you're on a mission to eliminate youth homelessness, not just in Seattle, but in the region and, and preferably in the nation. And you got a chance to collaborate with Pearl Jam on a big event and beyond just the event, some, some you were on their advisory board and, and more pushing uh, for change. What can somebody who's listening and trying to make sense of all the homelessness that they're seeing and trying to figure out where they fit in. What could somebody listening learn from your experience collaborating with Pearl Jam on the home shows? I think a couple of things. One, I would say to you know all of the celebrities that are out there, um, Pearl Jam created, I think, a roadmap about how to do this the right way. They gathered together an advisory group of, of experts and uh, people who had actually experienced homelessness, and they really listened to them. Um, they were really guided by um, their input. Uh, they did not, you know, these are obviously people known across the globe, uh, but boy, did they not bring their egos into the room. And, and you know, the band members would sit there and listen and really figure out how to do this based on the input of the folks around them. So I think one thing is uh, make sure that you invite into the room the, the people who you know have the knowledge, and that always should include people who've actually experienced homelessness um, or whatever whatever it is you're trying to address. Um, two, um, I think for people on the other side, funders like me, um, is be willing to look past the skepticism that uh, somebody who is not an expert. Uh, isn't going to be come in and, and make a huge change in this case Pearl Jam you know certainly not experts on homelessness they had they're not a business per se in the region although you know in some ways they are they just wanted to come in and use their platform to bring people together in a, in a community that was really fractured and I think we were skeptical about that but they um, they were the right messenger at the right time and they did it in the right way so I think there is a there is a lesson to be learned about um, strange bedfellows here. There's a lesson to be learned about the right messenger at the right time, and sometimes that's not anybody who's been working in this area. It's it's a third way through. Um, 
it's got to be somebody that people like and relate to, but they don't have to necessarily be the expert. And if somebody went to one of those home shows or read about it and was just like, that is so cool. I want to do something. If Pearl Jam can do something, I want to do something. Um, But maybe still hasn't found that something yet. Is there anything that you've learned either through the Rakes Foundation or through working with Pearl Jam on the home shows? If somebody who's looking for a way to help or looking for something to do, what they could do? Yeah, I mean, one of the great things is uh, Pearl Jam created resources that I think uh, help people connect in the way that feels best for them. So on their home shows website are all sorts of videos about efforts that are going on that people can connect to in different ways. Um, It's not just money. I mentioned, you know, uh, host homes. Uh, There are people who are um, who are making small donations. They're obviously Pearl Jam wants to make sure that people get involved in the civic process. We need people engaged with the city council and the county council and state government. Um, I think that they've created on their website, on the Home Show's website, a lot of different information about ways that people can connect. And that was important for them. And I would also say, um, given everything I'm se- I've seen, we haven't seen the last of Pearl Jam engaging in this space. In fact, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we've just seen the beginning. So keep an eye out for their continued engagement. And hopefully, as they continue to engage, they'll bring the whole community along with them. So um, getting on their mailing list, um, there is a home show's mailing list. And that's not, um, it's not done. It really is just starting. And so now you have lived in Seattle for decades. You've worked with the Rakes Foundation trying to end youth homelessness, collaborated with Pearl Jam on the home shows. Any concluding thoughts? I, If I were a betting man, I would bet on Washington State, uh, Seattle, King County, and, and other communities uh, as being the ones who will end youth homelessness first. There's something special going on here. Seattle has always been a special place, um, and the stars are aligning in, in such a way that um, uh, there's really something magical going on here. And I think that we'll see when we look back and you know in 2020 or 2022 that um, Seattle led the way to uh, addressing both youth homelessness and homelessness in a larger way. And um, I think that's my hope, and and um, I feel pretty confident that we're, we're headed in the right direction and um, Pearl Jam played a, a big part in that. Casey, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Thanks for having me. While the homelessness crisis can be tragic, painful, and quite frankly, daunting, there is reason for hope. There is a lot of work to be done, but there are voices from Seattle Growth Podcast who are optimistic about the prospects that the people of Seattle can find a way. I wrestled in high school, and my wrestling coach was like, never give up. He always he instilled it in me, you know. Nothing, nothing, you know, nothing's impossible, you know. You can, if you try your heart best, you know, you can accomplish anything. Well, the, the best thing about Seattle is it's got tons of really smart people. You know, my, my partner Nick is an example of someone who's gotten really involved in civic action way more than me and has done a lot of incredible stuff just through force of will. Um, and there's lots of people like that. And so Seattle's full of smart people and lots of cool things will happen. Um, we just have to recognize we have a shared fate. Too often our conversations about poverty are divisive. And we have to realize that poverty problems are problems we all experience. All, fam- all our family members are, are vulnerable or we have family members who may be poor. They affect all our neighbors and our communities. 
it's that shared faith that we have that matters. And if we aren't willing to tackle poverty in all places, we won't be successful in tackling it in any one place. If you have a passion, if you have a concern, if you have an issue, uh, talk about it, but act on your words. You know, at some point, try to figure out how to actually do what you need to do. Distressing as wide-scale homelessness is right now and the associated, you know, the drug use where that's a factor, as discouraging as that can be, we're capable of effectively addressing it. I mean, uh, if your background and everything is up to par, then, you know, the jobs is not hard to find here. They're, they're, doors are opening and, and, you know, it's all dependent on what you're looking for, you know, but it's here. That is all for this season of Seattle Growth Podcast. But have no fear. Seattle Growth Podcast is returning for a sixth season. The focus of season six is finding community in a dynamic city. Whether you are new to the city or have seen your friends or family leave as the city has been transformed, you'll learn what communities are being built and how to find or build a community that is meaningful to you. Subscribe to Seattle Growth Podcast and iTunes so you don't miss a single episode. As promised earlier in this episode... I want to give you an exclusive chance to join me at the red carpet premiere of my documentary, On the Brink. The film is a story of history, hope, and determination. We have Hall of Fame athletes, talented musicians, elected officials, and business leaders planning to come together for a memorable evening. A very limited number of tickets will be available to the public later this month, but I wanted to invite you, a loyal listener, to come enjoy the film alongside a who's who of people making this city what it is. Visit http colon slash slash events.uw.edu slash on the brink. That's http colon slash slash events.uw.edu slash on the brink. Note that there's no www in that web address. So go straight to the events.uw.edu slash on the brink. I look forward to seeing you on the red carpet. And as we conclude season five, I want to thank all the guests who share their perspectives. I want to thank Ed Cromer and Mike Bosey at UW's Foster School of Business. I want to thank Victor Balta, Peter Kelly, Michelle Ma, and Rebecca Gorley from the UW News and Information Office. Most importantly, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for listening and for joining me on this journey in the fifth season of Seattle Growth Podcast.